If you've ever been out uh, flying on one of these large jumbo jets crossing the ocean, you know that uh, they'll load the plane with fuel and people and cargo. And if you've been seated by one of the windows over the wings and you look out and watch the wings on takeoff, what you'll notice is the wings move. Now, I'm not talking about the flaps or the brakes and other things that the center of the wing that will come up and down and do things. I'm, I'm talking about all the way out at the tips. If you watch as you're taking off, those, those wings will move up and down way out at the tips. On the largest planes, they'll move several feet. And the reason for that is because if there was not any wiggle room out there on the wings, they would break off and the plane would crash. Now, if you come all the way down the wings to the fuselage, uh, there's no wiggle room there. You don't want your wings moving up and down where they attach to the fuselage, or again, the plane will crash. Now, I share that because when it comes to the church, uh, there are multitudes of different people here and backgrounds and tastes. So there are going to be times that uh, people disagree on things, the way things should be done in a church. It could be uh, the style of music. It could be even the color of carpet. There are churches that have actually split over the color of carpet. So when people are saying one thing should be done this way or another, uh, what we need to focus on as believers are the essentials of the faith. And if you're having trouble understanding what the essentials are, you may say, well, everything I believe and prefer are essentials. I would point you to read the Nicene Creed or what's also called the Apostles' Creed because there it tells us what the foundations of the faith are, what the fuselage issues are where there can be no wiggle room. And as we've been going through the letter to the Galatians, we've seen that Paul has been dealing with the foundational issue, a core doctrine which is, what is the gospel? And Paul says there can be no wiggle room. There is no room to allow one person to say you're saved this way and another one to say, well, just add this or or that to the gospel. What Paul has made clear so far in this letter to the Galatians is we're saved by God's grace through faith alone and Christ alone. And he says there is nothing that can be added to that. So as we turn in our Bible today to Galatians chapter 2, We're going to see that Paul is again dealing with this foundation of our faith. He returns to Jerusalem, and he's going to once again meet with some of the leaders of the church there. And as we're reading in Galatians 2, you're going to hear Paul using words like circumcision and uncircumcision. And uh, circumcision was a sign of the covenant given to the Jews. And so as he's referring to those who are circumcised, uh, like when he says Peter is the apostle to the circumcised, he's saying God gave Peter the ministry of, of being the primary messenger among the Jews. And as you read Romans 1.5, it, there it says Paul, the apostle, was given his primary ministry to the, to the Gentiles. So that's what we're going to be talking about and looking at today as we begin reading in Galatians chapter 2. In Galatians 2, 1 through 10, Paul says, And after an interval of 14 years... I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. It was because of a revelation that I went up, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but I did so in private to those who were of reputation, for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren, secretly brought in, who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. But from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference 
to me, for God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I also was eager to do. Now, as chapter 2 is beginning, we see Paul's continuing what we were looking at in chapter 1. There he had been defending his apostleship, and the message that he had is coming from God and not from man. And in chapter 1, Paul uh, says, I had previously been with Peter and James. We saw where he had had that meeting. And now he says he's back in Jerusalem 14 years later. Now, it's easy as we're reading the Bible just to skip over things like that. But I want you to think for a moment about what does 14 years mean? Uh, As you think about things you've been dealing with in your life, maybe struggles or stuff you've faced, what does a period of 14 years look like? Now, as I read that, it really stuck out to me because I'm in my 14th year here at Wayside Chapel. And so as I read Paul talking about ministering for 14 years and the opposition and the things he's been dealing with, I thought, what does that really look like? So I thought, you know, a picture's worth a thousand words. So this, this is my family when I came to Wayside Chapel. This was actually how we were introduced to the church. Now, you notice I had black hair back then. Uh, my kids were younger, Zachary. Uh, was even a baby. And so as you think about what does 14 years look like, this is it. Now, as you can see, as the years have passed, things have changed. Hair starts to gray. Uh, Kids grow up. Some of them go prodigal, like my son wearing an Aggie jacket. Uh, He got that from his older sister, who's an Aggie as well. And uh, so as this is going on, this is Paul. Paul says, I've been there in Galatia. I've been ministering for 14 years. And think about what's happened. Babies who were born, born born-again believers, brand-new Christians have grown up, like Titus, who we see is traveling with Paul. Paul has gotten older, not just because of the years, but the wear and tear that has happened. As Paul has has been in opposition to these Judaizers, these people who were trying to... change what the gospel message was. He says in this passage we just read, I didn't even give ground for one hour. And he says, I've been fighting for 14 years with them over the truth of what the gospel is. Now we're told Paul's back in Jerusalem. And as you read through the scriptures, what you find are there are five trips that Paul made to Jerusalem after his conversion. And I've highlighted two in yellow that are possibilities of what we're reading. If you look at option three, it says the visit to attend the Jerusalem Council, which is referenced in Acts chapter 15. And in the first sermon in this series, we talked about when did Paul write this letter to Galatia, to the churches that were there. And you'll remember it covered an entire region. You had the northern area of the original kingdom, and then you had the southern area where the Roman Empire had brought in. And Paul, in his first missionary journey, was ministering in the south where he planted all these churches. Now, if you take, we talked about the dating. If you said Paul was up in the northern area of Galatia, well, then this letter would have been written around 55 to 57 B.C. And we talked about this visit to the Jerusalem Council 
taking place in 49 AD. And if Paul was talking to that, where the disciples had made this this you know major ruling where there had been this public meeting where there had been this decree that was sent out, Paul would have said in this letter, now you know here at the Jerusalem Council this had taken place. So that's why I said that I believe what we're dealing with is the earlier visit in the first sermon, and I'll say it again today. When it says that Paul was there, you see scholars call this the famine visit. And the reason for that is as you read Acts chapter 11, verses 27 through 30, It tells us now at this time some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Remember, that's where Paul and Barnabas are pastoring to these Gentiles in Galatia. And it says, One of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. Now, you remember Saul is Paul's original Jewish name. And so what it's saying is, in Galatians 2.2, Paul says, I came to Jerusalem because of a revelation. And here we see this revelation given through the prophets that there is going to be a famine. And they said, you as believers should remember the saints who are suffering in Judea, where Jerusalem is, and, and bring a love offering, support for the believers who are there that are struggling economically. And this is what fits with what we're seeing. And so as Paul and Barnabas come, these co-pastors of the church bringing this offering to help with the needs of the saints in Jerusalem, they say, we not only presented the money to the leaders, but we had a private meeting. And, and in this meeting, we talked about what was happening down in Galatia. Now, the apostles in Jerusalem knew there was a lot of work that God was doing in Galatia. Peter had seen that firsthand. As you read Acts chapter 10, God had actually sent Peter down to this region where the Gentiles were after the church was birthed at Pentecost in Jerusalem, where you had all these Jewish believers. God's spirit began to show that the message was not just for the Jew, but the Gentile also. Now, the scripture says it's to the Jew first and then the Gentile. And Peter, as you remember, his primary ministry was to the circumcised. He was an apostle to, to carry the message to the Jews. And it doesn't mean it's exclusive because God told Peter, I want you to go down and I want you to meet with a Roman centurion by the name of Cornelius, a Gentile. And Peter was struggling with this because he says, God, you, you know, Gentiles are unclean and they eat unclean food. And as you read there, you'll see there was this vision God gave him. Food was lowered down in a sheet. And God says, eat this. And Peter says, it's unclean. I can't do this. And the, the reason for all this revelation was God said, I want you to see that people are not unclean. And he called them to share the gospel. Cornelius, his family, others came to faith in Christ. Peter saw evidence of that as the Holy Spirit was there. He ate with them. And so he knew the Gentiles uh, were genuinely able to come into the church and come to faith. He returns to Jerusalem, and in Acts 11, you see where the party of the circumcised, these Judaizers who were saying, you have to be circumcised, you have to follow the rules and rituals, you have to come into the Jewish religion, said, well, these Gentiles all have to do this stuff. And Peter said, no, they're, they're full brethren. These are brothers and sisters in Christ. I've seen evidence of it. And so Peter uh, stood his ground, and that went away. Now, next week, we're going to see in Galatians 2.11, where Paul and Peter 
uh, had to have a, a face-to-face confrontation about this because Peter had fallen away and he was being swayed again and he was no longer eating with the Gentiles. And Paul says, I confronted him to his face. Now, Jason's going to be talking about that next week, so I won't steal his thunder. Come back to hear more about what happens there. But as we're looking here, you've got Barnabas. Now, Barnabas was a Jewish believer, not a Gentile, like Titus, who had come to faith. Uh, Barnabas was actually a Levite from Cyprus. His name was Joseph. Now, we know him best as Barnabas. It's a nickname that means the son of encouragement. And he's referred to this all throughout the scripture because this is what this man did. He was always coming alongside, encouraging, supporting. He was the first guy to come to Paul when he was still Saul after his conversion and everybody was afraid and Barnabas spoke for him. Uh, Barnabas was the guy that the Jews sent down uh, to the Gentiles. They said, look, this stuff is happening. We need eyes on the situation. We need somebody we can trust to tell us what's going on. Barnabas gets down there, says there's this great work of God among the Gentiles. Many are coming to faith. And true to his name, he stays. He encourages the believers. He actually becomes the pastor of the church there. As the church is exploding, he says, I need help. He calls Paul to come and be the co-pastor at Antioch. And so Barnabas was very involved in the ministry to the Gentiles. Now, the other guy we see mentioned is Titus. Titus was a Greek. Titus was a Gentile. And this is a guy who, as you read Titus 1.4, that book is named after this man. He became a co-laborer with Paul. Paul writes a pastoral epistle to him. And in Titus 1.4, Paul says, you are a product, you are a fruit of my ministry among the Gentiles. You came to faith under my preaching of the gospel. I raised you up as a leader with God's help. And so he was a very important man in the early church, especially among the Gentiles. And here we see he's a very important part of the defense of the gospel of grace because he literally becomes exhibit A in this argument with the Judaizers. Paul brings him to the other apostles in Jerusalem and says, not only do you see uh, this man and his life and his labors, who he is and what's happening, but you see that he's not been circumcised. And Paul says, this is a test case. Are these leaders in Jerusalem going to say, well, he has to be circumcised or he's not uh, a part of the, the community and not able to be a leader in the church? Now, we're told here as Paul is meeting with those in Jerusalem, he says in verse 2, I met with those who were of reputation. And this is a phrase that is used to speak of somebody in authority. And as Paul uses this designation, you'll notice he says it in verse 2, in verse 6, and in verse 9. And in verse 9, we see who the people are that he's referring to. There's Peter, James, and John. Now, Peter, or Cephas, as his other name was, and also you remember Christ called him the rock. He said, Peter, you're the rock that I'm going to build my church on. So Peter was part of the original group of the original apostles, and he was a very important part in the inner circle. So as we're talking about the pillars of the church, Peter is one of them. And then you've got James. And we talked about James in Galatians 1.19. James was the physical half-brother of Jesus. Remember, the Holy Spirit came upon Mary, and she gave birth as a virgin to Jesus. And then Joseph, who was her husband, and Mary had normal relations as husband and wife and had normal physical children. And James was one of them. Jesus had many half-brothers and sisters. 
And James originally mocked Jesus, didn't believe he was the Messiah. But then after his resurrection, Jesus appears to James. And James, who is an Orthodox Jew, uh, comes to faith and says, you are the promised Messiah. And as he puts his faith in Jesus, he becomes a leader. In fact, he becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem. So he's a major uh, pillar as well in the early church. And then the last guy named John is the beloved apostle. He's the one that we have the Gospel of John. We have the book of Revelation. We have all these books of the Bible that are represented. When you look at this group of four men, Paul, Peter, James, and John, 20 of the 27 books of the New Testament were written through the pens of these people under the inspiration of God. So when we're talking about what does the Bible say, what is the gospel message, this is a very austere, august group that is going to be able to say, this saith the Lord. And as Paul meets with these guys, uh, he, he says, you've got these Judaizers who are saying, in order to be saved, you have to do the works of the law, the rules, the rituals, the sacrifices, the covenant signs like circumcision. And Paul says, as I'm meeting with these guys, I feared that I might be running or had run in vain. Now, reading that, you may think Paul's saying, gosh, you know, for 14 years I've been saying is grace alone, but I'm just not sure. And are you guys going to correct me? And he goes, whew, they said I had been right. That's not what Paul's saying at all. Remember, earlier in chapter 1, we saw where Paul said very clearly, my revelation came directly from God. He says, there is no question of my apostleship. There's no question of the message that I'm preaching. I know it's right. What Paul's saying here is as he's thinking about meeting with these guys, if there's this battle about, well, you know, maybe there should be some wiggle room. Maybe we should allow this or that. Uh, what Paul's saying is this could create great confusion in the church. It could derail the ministry that is taking place. The church is exploding among the Gentiles. The gospel is going forth. And he says, if I now have to get in a fight with the family of God over what the, the foundation of the faith is, I'm going to move from fighting our foe Satan to the family of God, and it's going to derail the work. It's like what happens in a lawsuit. If you've ever had to be involved in a lawsuit, you know that you're saying the law is clear on this. I know what the law says, but there are somebody in opposition. And you may ultimately have to go to court to fight somebody who is keeping you from doing what is allowed. And so you, you spend all this time and resource and you go through things and time and energy and money can be drawn away into this fight. And at the end of the day, the court will rule and say, yes, you were right all along. And you're able to do what you were doing. But you've had this, this period of time where you've been pulled away from the work. And that's what Paul's fear was. He says, I'm going to be over here fighting the family instead of our foe. And he says, I don't want to be in this long, drawn-out fight where the church in Jerusalem is battling the churches down in Galatia and where the Jews and the Gentiles are suddenly becoming two kind of splinter groups and they're not together and unified. As you read Ephesians chapter 2, you see where Jesus, as he came, he talks about taking the Jews and the Gentiles and making them one new entity called the church. Ephesians two fourteen through 16 tells us this. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one, and he broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. That word is balustrate. It speaks of that wall in the temple that separated the Gentiles from the Jews. And he says, Jesus has removed that separation. 
And he says, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of, contan- law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. He says, when Jesus came and died on the cross, he removed the separation of Jew and Gentile. He made one new body called the church. And just as the veil in the temple was torn in two, showing that no longer did you try to get to God through the the law, but it was through what Jesus did, the separation has been removed. He says, Jesus has reconciled man to God and Jew and Gentile into one new entity. And his fear here is, is that there could be some hindrance of the good news of the gospel, that the work would be separated. He knows that there are people who say, you know, peace is worth it at any price. You know, there are some things that we just have to find some wiggle room in, and we have to let people pick and choose because we don't want to get in this fight. And what Paul says is, this isn't a wingtip issue where there can be wiggle room. He says, this is a fuselage issue. This is the gospel. This is whether or not you're saved through grace alone, through faith alone in Jesus Christ, or it's that plus anything else. And as we saw in chapter 1, Paul said, if you add even one thing, one thing to the gospel of grace, you've made it something it's not. He tells us that later in Galatians 2.21 that we'll come to in the weeks to come. He says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Paul says, if you add faith plus baptism, faith plus speaking in tongues, faith plus joining the church. You know, we welcome 24 new members into fellowship today at Wayside Chapel. I can tell you that in over a quarter of a century of being a pastor, I have never had God call and say, we need you to transfer a letter of membership from your church to heaven. If you're not familiar with that, in churches, you move membership from one place to another, and a church says, we need your, their letter of membership to prove you know, that they're in standing in fellowship. That's a joke. Never mind. Uh, if we were Baptists, they would have loved it. Um, but as, as we look at this, Paul says, look, faith alone is what saves us. Now, you may be thinking, well, you know, Paul's kind of one of those black and white guys who likes to fight about everything. I mean, remember before he came to faith in Christ, he was a persecutor of the church. He's pursuing people. He's dragging them to jail. He's standing there holding coats while they're stoned to death. And here Paul's fighting everybody, the Judaizers. He's confronting Peter to his face next week. I mean, Paul's kind of one of those guys who just likes to mix it up, right? Paul chose what was important to fight about. And Paul was not somebody who said, this is, this is an issue where I can't see the other side. In fact, as you read through the Bible, what you find is there is a time in Acts chapter 16 and verses 1 through 3 where Paul actually circumcised a believer in Jesus Christ. And you may be saying, whoa, 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 Roger, you just said circumcision is not needed for salvation. Why is Paul uh, then circumcising a guy? The Bible tells us that the cross of Jesus is a scandal on, a word that literally means a stumbling block. It says the gospel is offensive to people. And what Paul was doing when he circumcised this guy by the name of Timothy is he said, I'm removing a potential stumbling block because I'm ministering among the Jews with a guy who himself is a Jew who was never circumcised. Let me unpack what I'm talking about here. Remember, the Judaizers are saying a Gentile 
must become a proselyte to Judaism. And what a proselyte is, is a person who leaves one religion for another and is a sign of Jewish men becoming Jewish, I mean of Gentile men becoming a Jewish proselyte, they would be circumcised. And so that was a requirement the Judaizers said. Now, Timothy was a guy who was already Jewish. And we know Timothy is a Jew because uh, the Bible tells us that he had a Greek father and a Jewish mother. And if you have studied traditional rabbinical interpretations of Judaism and things, they say that the, the line of the Jew comes through the mother. And the reason they trace the line of Judaism through the mom is because the parentage of a baby is never in question with the mother. She physically gives birth. You know that the mom is the mom, where they say the, the dad could be in question in some cases. And so Judaism will say that you follow the line through the mom. So when you're looking at Timothy, even though he had a Greek dad, he had a Jewish mother. So he's a Jew, racially. And he's a Jew by upbringing because in 2 Timothy 3.15, it says, From childhood, Timothy had been taught the Old Testament scriptures. So he's already Jewish by race and by training. And so when Paul circumcises Timothy, he's not doing what the Judaizers were saying, where they're saying Gentiles must become Jewish proselytes. This is why Paul makes such a big deal why he says Titus in verse 3, not even Titus who was with me, though he's a Greek, a Gentile mom and dad, he says, though he was a Greek, was not compelled to be circumcised. It's, It's like a legal proceeding that we're looking at here. I said Titus is exhibit A. And in a legal proceeding... Uh, there's the law, and then there's what's called case law. And you'll always see cases, whenever something goes to the United States Supreme Court, everybody makes a big deal about it because they say, this is the highest court in the land. And whatever this case is becomes the precedent that then drives the decisions of all other cases that follow. And so you've got Titus, who is brought to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is where the center of Judaism is. The temple is there. The sacrifices and offerings are there. It's the seat of Judaism. So in terms of the Jewish court, uh, they're thinking this is the place where if there is a decision affecting what is Judaism and Christianity's intermingling, this is the place. And it's also the center of Christianity. The original apostles are there. The church was birthed at Pentecost there. This is the place where the decisions that are made are going to have ripple effects throughout the entire land. It's why this Jerusalem council became so important where they said, okay, we are going to make sure that there is crystal clear, no question about this. And so Paul is in this private meeting. The Jerusalem council is this public. And Paul meets with them and he says, so what say you guys? about Titus. Does he have to be circumcised or not? And they said no. It has impact in Jerusalem. It has impact in Galatia, a far-off region. It has impact to the farthest reaches of the, the known world as the gospel is shared. You see, what happened is the Judaizers had made this the make-it-or-break-it situation. They said, we're going to drive a wedge between the apostles in Jerusalem and the missionary pastors from Antioch. We're going to separate Jew and Gentile apart here. But instead of driving a wedge between the two, they drove a stake through their own heart because the decision was made that said, no, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, period. 
And in verses 7 through 9, we see that they, they add to the, the, the solemnity of the decision as it says they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and Paul. Now, the right hand of fellowship in the Middle East is a sign of partnership. It's not just a courtesy. They weren't just saying, hey, we like you, Paul. Hey, Barnabas, great to see you. What they're saying is we are partners. You are a full member and you are a person sharing the truth of the gospel. Paul has said, I don't need the recognition of the other apostles. But here they are giving a public validation of Paul and his ministry. And as they establish what the gospel is, as they say who is in and who is out, the Judaizers and their false messages are out, we see that they also say these guys are false brethren. Paul calls them false brethren. A, a, a word that is only used two times in the Bible, pseudo-Adelphus, false brothers. He says they're sham Christians. They claim to be believers. They claim to be preaching the, the truth, but they're not. What Paul says is they're, they're spies who have sneaked in. Now, Paul uses a, a rare Greek word here too. It's, it's another word that's only used twice in the entire Bible. It's used once here in our passage, and the other is in Romans chapter 5, verse 20. And there in Romans 5, 20, it says, the law came in. That's the word we're talking about. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. See, what Paul's saying in Romans chapter 5 is, the law is not what it looked like. A spy is somebody who appears to be part of your group or in the military, you know, one of you as a soldier, but they're really somebody in there trying to subvert and, and destroy what's happening. And he says, people have said the law is how we're saved. That's what it looks like. But he says, that's not what it was ever designed to do. He says, you know what the law does? It increases our understanding of our transgression. We now know the things we're doing that are wrong. And he says the law was never designed to save anyone. What the law was designed to do is show your need and mine and how impossible it is for us to get to God through keeping the law because we can't. So he says what the law was designed to do is show our need for grace. And, and as you think about the law, the countless regulations for cleanliness that God gave to Moses, they were designed, among other things, to show how impossible it is to get to God, to, to show us that we cannot become acceptable to God through the keeping of the law. And what these false brethren were doing is they said, oh, no, 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 the law is there to, to show us how to be pure and acceptable to God. As you comply with the law, God will, will, will welcome you in. But that's not what the Bible says. Read Hebrews 9.9. 9. What Hebrews 9.9 9 tells us is gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. Remember Romans 5.20 said the law came to show our sin and thus our need for grace. For those who are trying to be saved through sacrifices offered under the law, Hebrews 10.4 says it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Well, then how are we saved? Hebrews 10.10 uh, goes on to say, that was Hebrews 10.4 that says it's impossible. And Hebrews 10.10 says, here's how we're saved by this. Well, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Remember, John the Baptist saw Christ coming and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here's your sacrifice, the Lamb of God, the perfect God-man. 
The Bible says the shedding of blood has to be done to, to deal with sin. And it says all the other sacrifices can't remove sin. Only what the, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, did can take away sin. That's the gospel. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Jesus didn't do away with the law. What he said is God has a standard, and God is holy and just, and that standard has to be met. That standard is perfection. And so what Jesus did is he said, you can't do it. The only one who can do it is God himself. So God took on flesh and blood because blood had to be shed to deal with sin. And it's why when he went to the cross, he said in John 19.30, paid in full, to teleste, literally it means paid in full. What was paid in full? Sins, penalty. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus said, I came to fulfill the law, to be a holy and just God, as well as a loving God. People will say, no loving God will send anybody to hell. And God says, you're forgetting I'm a holy and a just God, and I can't have sin in my presence. And so the cross is where justice and holiness and mercy and grace met through Christ. And the gospel message is we are saved as a gift of grace. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tells us, For by grace alone you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. And this is the gospel. This is what Paul is talking about. And he's battling these Jewish legalists who said, follow the law to be saved. But Paul said, they're drawing you off course. If you don't come to the cross, you're going to be lost for all eternity. That's why he says in Galatians 1.4, these false believers have sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. Paul's using military metaphors here. The, the words that are used here uh, speak of a, a war that is happening and how captives are taking place. And in Paul's day, if you were in a battle and you were a captive, you became a slave. They didn't have the Geneva Convention. They didn't have POW rules like we have today. They said, when you become a prisoner, you become a slave. And he says, this is what's happening. He says, rather than finding freedom in Christ that the gospel of grace offers, these Judaizers are Satan's undercover agents. They're, they're coming into the midst of the church. They're sabotaging the true gospel. And he, he says, the biblical gospel gives freedom but my opponents have this earn your way to heaven message that will lead people into slavery. I think many of us here know what that's like, don't we? If you've lived your life under a system of do's and don'ts, saying, have I earned my way to heaven? Do I have a good enough relationship with God to get there? Uh, we're, we're in this constant guilt treadmill of, of fear and insecurity where we're just waiting for the hammer to drop because we're saying, oh, I messed up again, I did that, or I didn't do this, I didn't go to church, I forgot you know, my offering, or I said a bad word, or I did this, and, and, and there's just this constant uh, do's and don'ts checklist, and you become this slave, and you, you live in fear. Now, as we're talking about this, I want you to understand something. I'm not telling you that when we come to Christ and we have this gospel of grace, that it's a, a fire insurance policy in your back pocket and now you're free to go out and live, you know, a life of debauchery. Is that what the Bible tells us? No. 
The, the Bible doesn't tell us to go off and lie and steal and commit adultery and do all these other things. Remember, Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law. There, there are not just the Ten Commandments. There are 603 other. There are 613 commandments in the, in the Bible. And as you look at them, what you need to understand is that is not a system of salvation. Let me say that again. The commandments are not a system of salvation. The Judaizer said, that's how you're saved. Follow these things, check those off, and you'll make it. If you're trying to do it that way, what the Bible says is you won't make it. You can't make it. Romans 3.10 says there's none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.23 tells us, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The glory of God is his standard of perfection. If you have messed up once in your life, lied, cheated, stolen, done anything wrong one time, you've sinned and you owe the penalty of death. You've fallen short of perfection. You see, the Judaizers and the apostles both told the Christians, you need to obey the commandments, but for totally different reasons. The Judaizers said, you do this stuff to be saved, but as believers who are saved... We do these things out of love and gratitude to God who gave everything to us. Let me illustrate it this way. If you go back to the the horrible period of time in our nation's history where we had slavery here in the U.S., they would buy and sell people. You would put somebody on a slave block, somebody could purchase them, and they became their property. And as a slave, they did whatever their master said. And the story is told one day of a a beautiful young girl who was up on the slave block. And there was this man in town who was known to be just this wretch of a a worthless type of person. And everybody knew why he wanted this young girl. As he looked at her, he had lust in his eyes and, and he began to bid on her. And every time that he bid on her, she would cringe because she knew what it would mean to be the slave to this man. Now there was a kind... A kindly old gentleman in in the crowd, a Christian who was watching this take place. And he stepped forward and he began to bid on this young girl as well. Now, the price started to get higher and higher. And every time each would bid, the other one would would raise the price. And it got to this astronomical level where finally this, this wretch of a guy finally said, forget it, you can have her, you buy her. And this guy paid this this high price for the girl. And as he turned away to walk away, this young girl started to follow this older Christian. And and he turned to her and he said, what are you doing? And she said, well, you bought me. I'm yours. I'm your slave to do whatever you want. And he said, oh, you, you misunderstood. He said, I didn't want you as a slave. He said, I bought you to set you free. And as he said that, this young girl dropped to her knees and she said, then I will serve you forever. The Bible tells us as believers, we are bond servants. That is a word that was used of a person who willingly attached themselves to the home of their master. They would literally stand against the doorpost. They would drive an all through their ear to make a hole and, and nail them to the home. Now, they didn't leave them there. They kind of let them loose, right? But everybody who saw that hole said, we know that you have attached yourself as a bond servant to your master. And as believers, that's what we've done. 
God had holes driven through his hands and his feet and a spear in his side. He, he died on a cross. He paid an astronomical purchase price to redeem us. In fact, the Greek word used to speak of our redemption literally means to be bought off the slave block. He bought us to set us free. And as believers, we follow the commandments. We worship God. We do things not because we have to. We do things not so that we can earn our way to heaven. We do things as an acknowledgement of gratitude for the grace that we've received in our life. Now, God is unseen in heaven. We, we can't see him. So when we serve him or we worship him, what does that really look like? Well, Jesus, while he was still physically walking the earth with us, told us what it looks like to serve him He said in Matthew chapter 25, whatever we do for even the least of these, we've done for him. He says, you can't see and serve me directly, but you can see and serve those who are around you. And when he talks about the least of these, it's like what's being referred to here in verse 10, where the apostle said to Paul, hey, just one thing. We want you to remember the poor. Now, Again, I want you to understand very clearly, they weren't saying, okay, Paul, it's grace alone through faith alone plus this one little thing. Just make sure you take care of the poor. They were not saying you have to do things for the poor in order to be saved. What they were saying is you're doing things for the poor because you are saved. Let me take you back to this understanding of how we were lost and helpless. We were were without hope, the scriptures literally say, before Christ came. We were helpless. We could do nothing for ourselves. A person who is in poverty cannot meet their own basic needs. They can't take care of themselves. Somebody else steps in to help them. And because we who are believers in Christ recognize we could do nothing to save ourselves, but God gave his grace and saved us. As a response of that, the way we mirror that, the way we reflect we're serving God even to the least of these as we say these are the the ones who are unable to care for themselves. The Bible tells us this is religion to take care of widows and orphans, the most vulnerable, the ones who have no way of helping themselves. And so this is a reflection of their status as those who have already been saved. Paul says, hey, I was eager to do this. In fact, I'm already doing it. Remember why he's there in Jerusalem? He's brought an offering for the poor. And this wasn't a one-time event. We, we find in Romans 15, 25 through 28, in, Ro- in 1 Corinthians 16 and 2 Corinthians 8, other times where offerings were taken up for the poor and it was given. It was, a, it was a manifestation of the grace that had been received as they said, here are people who are, who are helpless and dependent upon the grace of others. And this is what it is. It's a sign of being saved, not something we do to be saved. Let me close with this final illustration of what we're called to do as believers. There was a a lighthouse. It's on one of these rocky stretches of coastline. If you know what lighthouses were for in the days before we had all the modern navigation, it was to keep ships from being crushed on rocks and lives lost as they needed these lighthouses to to show them the way into the harbor or to to warn them of destruction that was coming. And this lighthouse was, was on this stretch of coastline, and once a month he would receive this allotment of oil that was needed to keep the light burning throughout the month. 
And it wasn't far from the shore, so the, the lighthouse keeper would have frequent guests who would come out to the lighthouse periodically. And, and one night there was a woman from the village who came out and she begged uh, for this man to give her some oil. She said, my house is without oil and we're freezing and we need, we need some oil to heat the home. And, and he gave her oil to stay warm. Another time there was a father who was there and he said, he says, we're without oil and we need some to light lamps and things. Could you, could you help me? Another needed some to lubricate a wheel and on and on these requests kept coming and the lighthouse keeper wanting to help those who were in need kept giving and giving of oil. And toward the end of the month, he noticed the supply of oil he had was running dangerously low. And even as he tried to ration it and do things, soon the oil was gone and the beacon went out. And that night there was a storm and his ships were trying to come in. They couldn't find the harbor. The light was out and and several wrecked and lives were lost. And when the authorities came in and they investigated what had happened and they found out, they they said to this, this man, you were given the oil for one purpose, to keep that light burning. As believers, we are called to share the gospel of grace. You can say, well, Roger, I want to help people. I, I, I want to make things better for people here on earth. And, and those are good things. But let me tell you this, friends. When somebody dies, the greatest need they have is for a Savior. When a person stands before Jesus in judgment, there is one question that will be asked. Did you receive my son, Jesus Christ, as the payment for your sins? And if they did not, their lives will be separated from God for all eternity in judgment. And so as believers, good works are important to do because they build goodwill that leads to the good news of the gospel. But we have one job and one job alone, which is to share the good news of the gospel. And the good news of the gospel of grace is one thing, faith alone and Christ alone, nothing else. And it is our job to be the lighthouse, to shine the way to those who are lost, to point them to Jesus Christ who said in John fourteen six, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And that's what Paul was contending for today. And that's what Paul calls on us to be faithful to do. Will you join me please as we go to the Lord in prayer? Lord God, we thank you for your word. Your word is not just a written word we've been studying, but you, Jesus. In John 1, 1, we're told, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And you, Jesus, came, and you took on flesh and blood so that you could go to the cross, so that you could be the payment for our sins. And I pray, Father, if there's anyone here this morning who's not yet received this gift of grace, that today they would realize their need. And they would turn to you and accept the payment, your blood that was shed, Jesus, in their place to wash away their sins. You tell us in Romans 10, 9, if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. And so I pray, Father, if there's anyone here who is not yet taking that step of faith and they recognize today their need for you, that they would say, God, I'm a sinner. I know I can't work my way to you. I know I can't earn my place in heaven. But I thank you, Jesus, that you took my place. Dying on the cross to pay that penalty of death I owe for my sins. 
Thank you, God, for washing away my sins. I believe you're who you said you are, the Son of God who died in my place. I believe that three days later, Jesus, you rose from the dead, showing you conquered sin and death. And today I thank you for that gift of new and eternal life I have as my personal Savior. Father, for the rest of us who have received that gift of grace, may we be faithful. Faithful servants, stewards of the mysteries as we, of this gospel of grace as we go into the world and we share the good news of who you are and what you've done, showing others the way home to heaven. Would you help us, Lord, to be faithful? We pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.